0: Can you sense the expectation in the crowd? 2,000 years ago, Jerusalem was a city not much bigger than our city, but it had swelled to somewhere around 2 million people to celebrate Passover. You think concert on the hills is a big deal in North Moncton. That is nothing on what was going on in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. As the people from all over Israel came into their capital city to celebrate when God freed them from the Egyptians. All along the way, they saw signs that they were once again oppressed people. They saw the Romans, the soldiers who were holding them back from their dreams. And the thing is, is these dreams had lived in the Jewish people for hundreds, even thousands of years. And recently in their history, there hadn't been a whole lot of reason to get very excited about those dreams, but today... Those dreams were vibrating in the air because a small crowd had been present in Bethany, a suburb of Jerusalem. They had seen Jesus of Nazareth call out to a dead man in his grave and say, Lazarus, come out, and he had come out. There had never been a sign like this, and when they read the scriptures in Daniel chapter 12, they saw that one of the signs of the end of the world when God would make all things right is that people would be resurrected, So this smaller crowd that had seen Lazarus raised from the dead rushed into Jerusalem to the huge crowd and said, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And it was that crowd that greeted Jesus as he came out. They were full of expectations. In Daniel chapter 7, it says that someday one like a son of man would come and destroy all the empires of the world and set up the kingdom of God. They felt that was happening. They read in their scriptures that God had a destiny for this world and for his people of shalom, peace and well-being and prosperity and security for their families. They wanted that, not much different than us. They longed for a time when they again would be the chosen people, not the people at the bottom of the pile, but God's special people again. And they looked for the time when everything would be made right. You see it in Isaiah 65. There'll be no more mourning or crying. The old order of things will pass away. And today, Jesus rode into Jerusalem. So they yelled out "Hosanna." And Mark's already explained that pretty well. But the verb used, to, or adverb used, to, to describe how they were saying it, means they were saying it like this: "Hosanna!" like a demand almost, very insistent because now it was going to happen. It wasn't like a hosanna, you know, like what you do. It was a very demanding hosanna. 200 years before, the Israelites had uh, been led into Jerusalem by a guy named Simon the Maccabee, and he had led an army into Jerusalem and drove out the Syrians who were occupying the Israelites at the time. The poor Israelites, they're always occupied. He had drove them out 200 years before Christ, and everyone had celebrated by waving palm branches. So when they're yelling Hosanna and they're waving palm branches, this is the most nationalistic, triumphalist entry you can ever imagine. But there was just one thing that sort of caught in people's minds the Messiah did not enter on a war horse, he sat on a donkey. Verse 16 is interesting to me. It says, at first his disciples did not understand all this. We're reading from John chapter 12, the scripture that Chelsea already read us. But verse 16 says, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, that these things had been done to him. Have you ever been at a place in your life where you think God's not doing anything, but then as you get time and distance from it, you look back and you go, oh, God was at work. This is one of those instances. But for the disciples at that time, it was like they were unable to see what Jesus was doing. The same thing occurs in the parallel passage in Luke 19, verse 23. It says, As Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and while everyone celebrated, he wept over it. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Their own dreams were hiding God's dreams from them. We generally dream in two ways, my friends. The first way is we try to bring back the past. The second way is we try to imitate someone else's present Now, fashion is a good example. I'd like to down fashion because I have no sense of it, so it's a really easy target for me. But in fashion, the new thing is coming, and you go, this is phenomenal. It's these jeans that flare out at the bottom. (laughs) Really cool new trend. And, and, And then once that thing's been brought back from the past and popularized, then all the people that are hip with the future imitate the other people who are bringing back the past. We do that in churches too. We celebrate the past. We say, wow, God, do it exactly like you did it before. Or we just look around for some place where God is working and say, okay, we'll do that too, instead of seeking a fresh vision from God for what he'd like to do. But God's dreams are so much different than ours. God dreams about the future. I was praying together with a friend. We were praying for someone that didn't know Jesus. And my friend was saying, God, reach out to him, do this and do that. And then after a second, he just thought, I don't even know what to ask. And so he said, you know what to do, God. You have a good imagination. (laughs) I laughed in my heart. I didn't want to interrupt the prayer. Um, And I said, I bet you he does have a good imagination. And it's stuck in there. Quite an imagination. He created the universe out of nothing. You know, there was nothing for him to copy. There was no past to repeat. There was no one else to imitate. He just dreamed it up. He said, stars and solar systems and quasars and black holes, superstars, let's make them all. He looked at earth and said, let's make life as simple as a cell, as huge as one of the great animals or great whales, and as intricate and beautiful as you. It was he that dreamed up waves and mountains and all the things that bring wonder to our hearts. And it's that same God that has unfinished dreams for this creation. He's gonna bring it to completion despite the mess that we've been part of making of it. And he wants to say to you today, would you like to dream with me? The expectant crowd was all around Jesus. And he said something they wanted to hear. John 12, 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. They're like, perfect. Daniel 7, Son of Man glorified. Kingdoms of this world wiped out. Kingdom of God set up. Exactly what they wanted to hear. But in the second breath that Jesus takes, in verse 24, he says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed But if it dies, it produces many seeds. This is the heart of what Jesus wanted to say. He introduces it with, truly, truly, listen up. This is it. Unless that grain of wheat is put into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. In the middle of their celebration, Jesus has just come out of nowhere and started to talk about death. His death, I'm going to be lifted up, he says. His followers' deaths, he says, follow me. If you want to follow me, pick up your cross. Consider your life of nothing and follow me. Be where I'm going to be. This is not what they had dreamed of at all. They wanted the Romans driven out. Jesus says, I'm driving Satan out. They wanted shalom and peace in their lives, and he says, give up your life. And so, in John chapter 12, you see that the palm branches come down, the cheering stops, and the majority of the people there disperse in unbelief because this was not the Messiah they expected. In fact, within a week, members of that same crowd are in another crowd that's yelling, crucify him, crucify him, just as insistently as they'd said, hosanna. And they're saying, give us Barabbas, release that rebel as our new Messiah. You can have this one, Pilate, because he does nothing in the real world. And then Jesus picks up his cross and he walks through that crowd that taunts him and jeers him to the cross. How could they be so different? How's your dreams these days? How are they holding up to the real world The real world's tough sometimes. How's the marriage? Is he still your knight on a war horse? Or is he more of a guy sitting on a donkey these days? (laughs) How's your shalom, your peace and prosperity? Do you have everything you need? Are the things threatening that right now? Teens and young adults, you're in the time of your life. Is it really a dream come true? Or at a time filled with weird emotions of confusion, boredom, and sometimes despair. For many of us, we're not living the dream. You might appear to be, but even if a whole bunch of things are in order in your life, if one thing is really out of order and full of pain, it spills over into your whole life. It gets so bad sometimes that people just stop dreaming. Do you know what Jesus would say to you today about your dreams? he would say, you're trying to out-imagine me. You've taken a bit from other people's dreams, you've taken a bit from the past, and you've formed this heavy expectation that you now bring to me, and you say, save. Instead, Jesus says to you, I have an invitation for you today. Come and die with me. Bring all your expectations with you, they have to die. If you know much about religion, it might sound like I'm starting to speak about Buddha, not Jesus. Buddha said, hey, if you wanna be happy, stop wanting to be happy. Extinguish all your desires, and then you won't have any unfulfilled desires and you'll be happy. You'll also only be half human, not having full access to your emotions and passions, but things just aren't gonna affect you as much anymore. Do you think this is what Jesus is saying here? I think Jesus is saying, come die with me. Join me in obedience to the Father. Even when it's incredibly difficult and even when you have to sacrifice every expectation and dream, be like me. Let your last words be words of trust, your final answer. It's so hard to hear that. How many times have you felt why, Jesus? Why does life have to be so hard? Why do you demand so much from me? And Jesus would reply to you today, because if you can do that, something incredible happens. Resurrection. Resurrection. Three days later, Jesus, who had given everything, was rose again from the grave. Not just like Lazarus, who died, came back to life, still had all the same weird things about him, and then got old and died. We're talking about Jesus. He didn't just come back from the dead. He went forward through death. He came out immortal, eternal, bodily resurrected, everything that God had every planned for this world, the prototype of what God wants to do in our lives. Resurrection is what happens after the cross. Did you know that every dream that you take and you sacrifice to God comes back to life? We plant the little seed of our limited dreams in the ground, and it dies. And then God brings it forward to life bigger than we had ever hoped for. It gets multiplied. It gets filled with the creativity of God. It becomes a dream of God's future. Remember the expectations of the crowd as Jesus was entering Jerusalem? Make us a great nation, get rid of the Romans. Jesus had a bigger dream. He said, You're dreaming too small. He said, How about I make your, you a nation of missionaries? And how about I send you out to the Romans? And how about you take care of their sick? You bring them messages of hope. And you shame them to death by your very goodness and your love, even as they try to mistreat you. And we'll convert them. Did you know that's what happened? And then Jesus said, and look, it's not just about you and the Romans. It's about the whole world. I want those Africans to know me as their king. I want the mighty Asian continent to know me. There's even these crazy, weird Scottish and Irish barbarians out there that someday might come to me. I see Latinos. I see natives. I see English and Acadians. Your dreams were too small. Church, we dream too small. We still do the same thing. Jesus says, do you know what is better than sitting back in peace and prosperity? Going forward with an incredible message of hope and healing for all who are broken. Being part of setting captives free. You want the good life? How about I give you abundant, eternal life? How about every day becomes a foretaste of heaven? As little pieces of it are dropped in. I'm not going to give you a life of solid financial security. I am your financial security. One miracle at a time, I will take care of you. I've come to share a dream with you that is so big and beautiful that your life will sing for joy as it gets caught up in it. It will become your mission, your heartbeat, your daily obsession. And all those expectations you had before, they will come back to you when you least expect it, fulfilled and transformed into resurrection dreams. A brilliant theologian I am studying said this, to be painlessly happy and to conquer every form of suffering is part of the dream of modern society. But since that dream is unattainable, people anesthetize pain and suppress suffering and by so doing rob themselves of the passion for life. But life without passion is poverty-stricken. Life without preparedness for suffering is superficial. The fear of passion has to be got over just as much as the fear of suffering. Otherwise, life cannot be born again. That struck me. People try to anesthetize pain, medicate it. The truth is, is that our expectations need to go through death and resurrection. Our daily lives need to become little crosses, and little resurrections. There's two kinds. Two kinds of these little crosses and resurrections. The first is the cross that you choose. This is the thing that's been eating at you. It's the thing that you constantly push aside but the Holy Spirit brings to your mind. It is a sin that has become something that you are comfortable with or that you've said is not a sin. It comes often in forms that look good. Sometimes it's that relationship of love that if you were to hold it up to God's standards, it wouldn't match it. It isn't what God has. It's not marriage. It doesn't meet his standards. And he wants to say to you today, take that to the cross, sacrifice it to me, and see if I don't love you more. And see if I don't bring that dream and desire in your heart to life in a new and better way, better than you could have imagined it. He's on that cross. He's saying, come join me. That might be the cross that you need to go to today. The second type of cross is the cross that just happens to you. This is the thing that happened to you as a child. You had no choice in the matter. It's the thing that happened to you when someone you loved died and left you alone It might be the relationship where they left you alone, and they're still living. You might wish they were dead, but they're still living. (laughs) But you didn't have much choice in these matters, and there's only one thing you need to do today if you're on that type of cross. You need to realize that Jesus is right there beside you. Even if you don't sense it or feel it, he is there. Even in the dark valley of death's shadow, I am with you. If we can do these things, if we can go to these crosses and sacrifice those things that are not of God to him. And if we can take the things that we're suffering with and turn them over to him, he will bring resurrection. You may not, it may not be exactly the way you think it's going to happen, but it will happen. I guarantee you. One thing about me that uh, surprises people when they don't know me very well is what happens when a, a newborn baby gets close to me. I don't come across as real touchy-feely or anything like that. But bring a newborn baby nearby, and I'll have that baby in my arms so fast you won't know what happened. And if the baby's crying, it's no problem. I've got the I've got the little baby rhythm. I've got just hold them just so so they feel secure, and I'll love on that baby. Well, actually, I'll love on that baby until it won't stop crying, and then I just give it back to mom. <laughs> I love those babies. And uh, Matt, how come I haven't held Leo yet? I just can't wait, Matt and Jenna, to get my hands on Leo. (laughs) Little newborn baby. Here's why I love babies so much. Part of it. Three years after Jen and I uh, were married, we were blessed with our baby boy, Joshua. What a fun boy. I remember holding him uh, after he'd just been born. And uh, I took him in my arms and walked down this sunlit corridor in the... uh, in the hospital, and I was like, I'm a father. This is amazing. He was perfect. Um, two years later, we were pregnant again. And uh, we, had a, we thought, this is great. This is going to be just like we planned. It was a baby girl. So amazing. I was pastoring a church. Everyone was celebrating with us. That ultrasound technician took way too long, though, when she looked in the, in the womb just kept going back and forth. And you get that little gnawing feeling in the pit of your stomach. Then it was a referral, and then it was another referral, and we're down at the IWK. And the doctor said, your child has something wrong with her kidneys. They're full of cysts. It's not cycling the fluid through in the womb, and now there's no fluid in the womb, and the womb itself is compressed upon your little girl, and it's squishing her rib cage and stuff her lungs aren't forming up right. And we don't know how it's going to go, but I can guarantee you that your daughter is going to need new kidneys. You're going to have a sick child. So everyone prayed. Uh, we had so many people praying for us, it was amazing. Kind of helped carry us through. And then the baby was born, Emily. She looked perfect to me. Her ribcage was a little small, I guess. But they quickly pulled her away and just started putting tubes in her and working on her, trying to save her life. An hour after she was born or so, they had completed x-rays and a doctor said, come with me Mr. Adams, took me into the x-ray room and put up a picture of of baby lungs, the way they should look. And then he put up a little picture, x-ray picture of Emily's lungs and they were all shrunken. And he said, she will need kidneys, she'll be on dialysis, but I don't think she's going to make it with these lungs right now. We'll see what happens in the next 24 hours. I can't tell you how hard we prayed during that 24 hours. I have never in my whole life prayed like that, crying out to God for my daughter. And in that time, as I was crying out to God, God spoke to me in one of the most clear ways that he ever has in my life. And he said, that's how I feel about my children who are sick. Pastor them that way. At the end of the 24 hours, we went back into that x-ray room and the, the doctor put up the picture of the perfect lungs again. And I waited for the doctor to put up the picture of my daughter's lungs. And he goes, that is your daughter's lungs. I have no explanation for what just happened. We were overjoyed. Um, we thought, this is great. This is fantastic. And so we, our, our daughter was in the NICU. And we would uh, bring in little Josh, who I think you saw his picture up there a few minutes ago. And he would uh, give her toys and touch her. She's all tied up to tubes and everything. You can't pick her up. But, you know, we watch her kind of make some progress. Uh, Grandma and grandpa's there. The uh, genetic counselor comes in and says, look, you guys can't have any more kids um, because that's a recessive genetic disorder. If you have another child, there's a 25% chance that same thing. So we said, well, we accept that. Um, But we've got our daughter. It hit us so out of the blue though now after a week because all of a sudden we started to watch her oxygen levels go down. It turned out that her little lungs had popped up but uh, the pulmonary artery, I believe, was constricting the flow of blood from the heart and causing heart strain on the heart. And so we watched over the next week, the second week of her life, we watched her life slip away. At the end of it, we just got a chance for the first time to pick up our little girl and we kissed her on the forehead and held her one time. And then we had to put her down and we had to just walk away while well, they, the, uh, they shut off the machines. I had misjudged what God was up to. He would just given us two precious weeks with her. I remember doing the committal at the funeral Committing that little Emily to the future resurrection through Jesus. I remember being carried to some extent, but then grief hit my wife and I like an abyss that you can't imagine. It was so dark and so deep, we couldn't even barely be civil to one another. In the midst of that, someone, an opportunity came up to adopt a little girl or foster a little girl, and we thought that was going to happen, and it fell apart right in the middle, and we couldn't have been more devastated. Every time we watched our son Josh say, I'm bored. Can we get someone to play with me? We just felt like, oh, we've lost that family. We've lost everything. Five months after Emily died, I went to a prayer meeting that I had to go to, and uh, a man that was there named Dave King, just a simple guy who loved God, said, I want to pay, pray for you, Pastor. And I thought, thank God for this guy. He has such love for me. And I appreciate that, even though there's no way it's going to touch this grief. If you've lost a child, the grief lasts for years usually and it's always an open wound. But as he prayed for me, all of a sudden, the grief broke It just stopped. I went home and I said, Jen, Dave prayed for me. The grief stopped. I'm better now. And she goes, me too. I'm fine. Two days later, I'm reading the the Bible and Psalms and it says, your wife will be like a fruitful vine. You'll have children gathered around your your table. And I thought, "Eh, yeah, that's a general principle, but not for me. And God said, no, no, that's for you. Two days later, Jen said, I'm pregnant. So much for birth control. <laughs> but you know, what we went through and a perfect baby girl named Jessica was born to us. We named her Jessica because it means God sees. He had seen what was going on. I made my appointment quickly to get things permanently taken care of, doubled up protections. And before that appointment could be done, pregnant again. <laughs> Olivia, we named her Live because God had given back life to us. Every day, when I uh, see my girls, I give them a kiss on the forehead, and I don't think they quite know what that means because I know exactly what it is to feel death, to go to a cross, and to have your dreams die. But I actually know in a fuller and more amazing sense what resurrection is all about. I know the amazing, unpredictable, undeserved grace of God who can come into our lives and take that which is hopelessly broken and make it sing again, make it new When Jesus rode into Jerusalem and that crowd was waving the palm branches in victory, he wasn't thinking about that crowd. He was thinking about another one. And even when he drug his cross up to Calvary's Hill to be crucified, he wasn't thinking about that that, uh, crowd. Hebrews 12, 2 says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was this joy that he could see as he was going to the cross? I'd like to invite you guys to close your eyes for a second. Because Jesus did have his eyes fixed on something. It was a crowd that had to do with the end of time, with heaven, with what all this world is about. It's in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Close your eyes and see it. Because this is what Jesus had in his mind as he went through those two crowds. It says, After this, and I I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the lamb. This was the joy set before Jesus. This was the triumphal entry that he had in mind. This was the crowd he was giving his life for. This was his passion, his joy, his purpose and reason. Are you part of that crowd this morning? If you're not, you should today. Christian, is this crowd your destiny. Because if it is, it's time to sing a new song, a song of God's resurrection dreams for your life, a song that is bigger than you and reaches out to the hurt of the world. This is where all the little crosses of your life are leading, the ones you choose, the ones that were put on you. If you can turn those over to Jesus, He will bring such healing and fullness in your life that your life gets planted like a seed and many come out of it. Many are blessed. It is not a small thing. It is the mission of God. Pastors are down here at the front. They're coming. I want to invite you guys to stand right now. I want to invite you, if you need to, to come down and pray about the cross, the one that you need to choose, the ambition, the dream that you need to give up now to Jesus. The very wonderful thing that is not exactly what God had in mind. I want you to trust Him, that He loves you more, that He is more creative and wonderful and has better plans for your life than you could have ever dreamed up yourself. Come and give them to Christ. And if you as a Christian wanna embrace that mission like Jesus did, if you wanna have your eyes focused on that crowd, I invite you to come down and worship with these people at the front here who represent people from every tribe, nation, and language whom God has called us to reach out to. It's time to sing a new song. A song that is all about God's resurrection dreams for your life.